Today's podcast is brought to you by Progresso Talent Partners, who for more than 25 years have successfully delivered interim and permanent leadership talent to transform businesses. To hire the talent you need to enable your business to thrive, visit www.progressotalent.com today. William Reeve is CEO of goodlord.co, non-exec chairman of Nutmeg and non-exec director at Dunelm PLC. He is a serial entrepreneur who co-founded Fletcher Research, Love Film and Secret Escapes, as well as an experienced angel investor. He has previously served in a number of the leading internet businesses in the UK and Ireland as a founder, in an operating role, in a non-executive role, as an investor, or sometimes a combination of the above. So what's the story behind the story? Without further ado, let's get into it. William Reef, good morning. Welcome to the Astrology Podcast. Great to uh, have you on as my guest this morning, and I'm really, really looking forward to getting stuck into some uh, what undoubtedly is a is a fascinating story and career. But before we do so, I always like to start with the early years. Um, so childhood for you, where did you grow up? What was childhood like? Uh, morning, Lee. Um, I grew up as the son of an academic, actually. And my um, one of those sort of really, not just an academic, but a, a classics academic. So sort of as old school academia as you probably get. I grew up, I was born in Oxford, lived in Oxford for 10 years. And then we moved to the other place, as they call it, uh, Cambridge, uh, when I was about 10. And also, I think if I remember rightly, you... you um... Uh, you made reference to a, a very formative year for you—a a, a trip to Toronto, a sabbatical from your father in, in Toronto. Is that right? You had some time in Canada as well, growing up. That's absolutely right, actually. So, um, yeah, my, as an academic, my father got sabbatical. Sabbatical took, got taken seriously, and he uh, he took one year off every seven years, and um, had a year in—I don't think it was quite a year actually—and had some time in Hamburg as a three-year-old, and then had a year in Toronto as a ten-year-old, and uh, it was at the end of that that he ended up moving to Cambridge. And, and uh, large family, brothers, sisters. What, what sort of what was the sort of dynamic growing up? Um. I fairly probably what well, I suppose these days is going to look hopelessly conventional family sort of mum and dad and uh, three of us I was the oldest one sister one brother fantastic and and as for the um the posters on the wall if you like those those childhood heroes if that's the the right word but those figures or or individuals or personalities that you would have been looking up to or inspired by who might they have been I wasn't one of these people with posters on the wall I uh of of either people or inanimate objects I mean, I found myself interested in computers kind of at an early age uh, when they started coming along, really, but I was about nine or 10 when that happened. Um, but I didn't associate those with the people behind them, if you like. I wasn't, I wouldn't have known who Steve Jobs was or even Bill Gates, probably. Uh, but uh, no, I suppose, and I do remember following the Olympics pretty closely in um, 82, I suppose it would have been, with Seb Coe and Steve Ovette, that sort of... Uh, it was it was that sort of era that probably I remember. But I mean, that, that was well past. Uh, I, I had no that was no in no way as a role model for me. I, I could barely jog, let alone run. <laughs> and and that reference to computing or computers. Do you where did that first interest stem from? As an example, I, I suspect I have an inkling based on the Olympics that you've just mentioned. I remember quite vividly that being what. So we were we were of a similar age group. 
in our in our late twenties. Yeah, absolutely. These days. Um, but I remember thinking the ZX eighty one or the ZX Spectrum or you know those sorts of early Commodore thirty two, Commodore sixty four seem to be, but those sort of early home computers spring to mind from my perspective. But when do you first recall that interest in technology um, stemming from? Don't completely remember. I think family friends got an Apple IIe before I went to Canada, and I was I was quite interested in that, but. It, they weren't that good family friends that I could spend much time on it. And uh, although they did let me spend some time on it, so they were sweet like that. And um, But then my classroom in Canada had a Commodore pet in it. And I was definitely trying to hog that. And uh, and then by the time I um, got back to the UK, kind of computer rooms were appearing in schools and stuff. So um, And I was always in them. I, I don't know quite where that interest came from, but uh, it was uh, it was it was there in spades. But I think the advances that we've seen in technology, stunning as they are, and cliche though it is of me to mention it, but I remember my computer room at school. I think we had six BBC, I think they were called BBC A or BBC B computers. BBC B probably, BBC, BBC B. micros, yeah, model yeah. B. And, uh, you know, I think a school of what, 800 kids or whatever it might have been, uh, and one computer room with six computers in it. I mean, it's incomprehensible in the... You know, I would have been on one of those six every break. <laughs> so, so I read uh, in a Times interview actually that you'd been voted at school as the as the most likely to be a millionaire before thirty. Uh, where might your peers have, have drawn that conclusion from? Do you think? <laughs> well, I, I I found myself actually earning some money professionally as a as a kid. I, I wrote a computer game in my while I was doing my GCSEs. GCSEs didn't do too well, but the computer and, and the computer game got released publicly and. I found myself doing more of that actually uh, during my A levels. So I suppose the fact that you know I wasn't doing I wasn't doing paper runs. I was I was kind of actually publishing something kind of commercially in the market. Probably gave them a clue. Uh, I, I didn't. Uh, I, don't, I don't exactly remember how that competition went. I think it was some 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 smart aleck put that in, uh, as my description in the school yearbook. But uh, um, at the time, I didn't really didn't really understand why they why they thought that. But they saw they saw something in me which probably. They probably saw a bit further ahead than I did. Was that self-taught? So I would have guessed you just started coding in, would have been what, basic in those days and then just sort of picking up and advancing from there. Yeah, so I was I was lucky in that the um, the school I moved to in Cambridge, the, the computer they used was the BBC Micro Model B, as we talked about. And the uh, BBC, one of the advantages of it was it had quite a powerful basic built in and it also had, very unusually, no other, no other home computer did this. It also actually let you writing assembler or which essentially was machine code which is what you needed to use to write commercially standard games so um yeah, it was all self-taught with a gang of friends in the computer room but there was quite a useful body of literature actually there were books and stuff produced acorn based in cambridge of course kind of had a actually sort of spun off publishing arms and, and wrote books and things like this and and actually there were there were there was quite a lot of useful material out there which we were, became well thumbed both at school and at home and, and where had the idea for the game come i'm trying to think back to games that i would have played you know street fighter that would have been perhaps a, a track and field was one that always i used to love because i always loved my sport but there were you know there were the basic kind of space invaders type of games and galaxy and i've just these are names i'm plucking from obscurity i'm sure but where, where did the the inspiration come from for those games from your perspective well so the first one for me was actually um it, it was a it was a ripoff basically of another game uh, and what happened was there was a there were a couple of games that came onto the market which were four-way scrollers and uh they basically ran at 25 frames per second so they they couldn't quite 
scroll in line with the the TV. And um, I was having a bit of banter with a friend of mine, and I said, I just I think we could, I, you know, I don't know somewhere they're running it, you know, they're skip, skipping frames. You could be running at fifty frames a second, same as the TV. And uh, he said, well, I don't think the computers are fast enough to do that, are they? And anyway, the next thing you know, I was like, well, I think I've figured out a way of doing the scrolling at fifty frames a second. And and then we sort of goaded each other into, well, we could probably write a game then which is twice as fast as the, all these other ones uh, and that's what ended up happening um and we copied, we copied one of the other ones and added a few innovations of our own what we didn't realize or weren't thinking through at the time was that there was a reason why all these other games ran at that speed it was playable and our game was too fast to be playable but you know, it took me a few years before of hindsight before i learned that lesson what do you think you learned from that that early experience I think I think one of the things I learned. I mean, the games are the stuff that I sort of was most was proudest of, but actually they weren't the only stuff. And and there were a couple of things we did at school that were didn't ever quite see the commercial light of day, but were were up there. And the um, one of the lessons for me was even as school kids, you can compete with the best in the market. And you know, as I say, even that that first experience of looking at we're very successful game and going we can do better than that and um some of the stuff we did at school was essentially one of the tools that a lot of us sort of professional or semi-professional coders use was a was a chip you could buy a software program you could buy on a chip which everybody used it was called computer concepts disk doctor everybody used it It was a sort of it was a sort of little toolbox that would help you do all sorts of things and we're just like it's but it does, it, it's got a couple of bugs in it and uh, it doesn't support some of the latest things. And let's write our own. We can do better than this. And we ended up building an even better version of Disc Doctor than Disc Doctor. And I think that was a useful lesson for me because it there was probably would have been a tendency to think, oh, you're only a school kid. You know, you you you, you will let your, you know, stand, standards can be a bit lower. Nobody's expecting you to compete with the, the, the professionals. And actually, we very much realized, no, you know, the the best is not yet good enough and we can do better. Did you have a, was there a, a, a teacher or a, a, an adult figure, mentor, uh, someone who gave you that inspiration or gave you a push, a shove, guidance, whatever it might, was there that figure? One of the things I was very grateful for, it's nice to have an opportunity to talk about it at him, they and, uh, and it actually, is that uh, at my school, the computer club had, had some alums, um, Kim and Neil Spence-Jones, who had set up a local computer company and who made it their business to actually kind of stay close to the school and they kind of almost they, they sort of mentored us in the computer club and and they ended up hiring some of the guys from school kind of both in summers and and when they left school but uh kim spence jones in particular what took an interest and uh yeah he was something of a of a role model character and the that was partly where i suppose we got our our kind of the high bar from because you know you could hit the stuff he was producing was was um technically technically the, some of the best stuff in the market and um and he just expected that those of us who kind of knew our way around would be able to operate at that level and and in terms of of your kind of progress if you like from an academic perspective you then i was i was fascinated to read particularly given what you've just described that you read it, engineering economics and management at at oxford was there ever a sense that you know you might bypass university and jump straight into having gotten a taste for earning a few quid and seeing that actually creating something that would subsequently sell, I would imagine was a source of, there was a, there's an element of, there's a buzz that comes from that perhaps if this is the right turn of phrase. Was there ever a sense that you might've gone down that sort of route? Yeah. So actually, although I made some money as selling my computer game as a teenager, the, it wasn't very much money. It certainly wasn't enough that had me kind of, uh, I mean, I didn't, I didn't really, I wasn't a very 
I didn't think very commercially about that. I didn't really, I didn't know what my parents earned, and I didn't didn't really know, you know, what jobs were worth things like that. So, but at the same time, I kind of knew it wasn't enough to kind of walk off into the sunset with. But at the same time, I think for one reason or another, as I perhaps perhaps just having grown up in an academic family, perhaps being at a school in Cambridge, which actually uh, there were a lot of very smart kids. There were a lot of people who wanted to go to go to you know the best universities they could at Oxford and Cambridge uh, among them. And I think I always I, I was competitive in that respect, and I kind of want, wanted to do what I thought thought the kind of smartest kids were doing, and they were all they were all going to university. So I never seriously considered not going to university. I did have to take a year off actually, or not have to, but so I took a year off after school before university, and uh, went and worked for IBM in that year in London. But even then, I never never seriously thought of that as like why, why I actually don't need to go to university. Do I? I was always really excited to go to university. Really excited. Was really uh, thrilled to get into Oxford University, and uh, knew I'd enjoy it. Did enjoy it, and so actually have never had a scintilla of sort of second thoughts about what, what was the point of university. Why did I go to university at all? Actually, though, as it happens, my my sister didn't go to university, and she's turned out right. And uh, you know, I, I was I was the only one in the family to kind of follow. A, I suppose sounds like a conventional track there, but uh, but yeah, for me it was. That was that was always something I wanted to do if I could. And then from university into McKinsey's for a, a short period, uh, for a couple of years, is that right? Yeah, that's right. So from university, I st- started in management consultancy in London with McKinsey. One of the things that struck me as I researched your background was my first thought had been that it seemed it's relatively early, respectfully, in working life before you jumped out on your own, you know, with, with Fletcher Research, which I think my first thought through that research would have been that was your first business. You've already alluded to the fact that fledgling or otherwise, there's, there's some some business experiences that you've enjoyed earlier on in uh, in your teens. But um, what was it that, I guess, where did the, the, the inspiration behind heading out on your own, where had that come from? Yeah, you're reminding me of my, my brother-in-law who, uh, rest in peace, who... Um, he thought it was ridiculous. I was ridiculously young to start my first business when I did that in age 24. And, you know, he was something like 27 or something. So, but uh, I remember kind of going, hey. <laughs> he, he got me chafing and chafing in my uh, collar a bit. But uh, where did the inspiration come from? Well, to some extent, it was um, forced on me because the program I was on at McKinsey was a two year program. And uh, that was designed to be sort of fast tracking you sort of up through the through the ranks of McKinsey, but they wanted you to leave and go to some business school or something like that, and before before kind of coming back, kind of a couple of rungs up the ladder. And their sense, understandably, I think at that point, although it has changed a little since, was that you're not going to be an effective management consultant advising kind of captains of industry if you've just popped straight out of college and a few years later sort of uh, appeared at the, the top of a, of a place like McKinsey. So they wanted people to gain a bit more experience or at least formal business education. So that forced the question of, well, what am I going to do next? And I did fancy business school, actually, uh, but the business schools were so competitive to get, it, to get into. And you found you, you found yourself facing a quota system where, as a sort of pale male, Oxbridge, London, McKinsey person, there were probably 20 of us trying to go. We, we, we were probably up against a quota of one place at, at the top two or three business schools. And it's just like, I've got to, I'm not, I have too much respect for my peers at McKinsey never mind the other management consulting firms to uh, to kind of not want to consider my other options so I knew I needed to think of something else and at the same time I think I'd 
I remember a bit of a penny dropping in my last year at university when um when I was pretty I was pretty I was applying for management consulting jobs which I saw as a good job some of the best jobs on offer for graduates and I and they paid what seemed like quite a lot of money and they paid probably second only to the investment banks and things uh, the likes of Google and stuff didn't exist back then and I remember figuring out or learning what plumbers made and going hang on plumbers make quite a lot more than I'm likely to make as a management consultant for quite a while I, and I, and I, I, to be fair, I probably wasn't qualified to be a plumber, so maybe there was some justice in that. Um, but I also thought that the, the consultancies were sort of pitching themselves as you know paying pretty competitively, and you're going to start a pretty, a pretty sort of well-paid business career. And I thought the plumbers are missing through. They're not pitching that way. And why? Anyway, what? How come the plumbers are making quite a lot more money than these supposedly well-remunerated sort of business business jobs? And it was, um, it was that. That had me going. I suppose it's because they were it's their own gig, isn't it? Their own business, and um, that had me. That that started a thought process, which is probably at some point in the future. That's probably if I want to make some money, that's probably the better way of doing it. Um, so that, in combined with being forced to walk off, a, walk along a plank, uh, had me going. Well, you know, I better I better find someone find some way of swimming when I when I get when I when I get to the end of the plank, and my close friend neil who was also mckinsey with me and and uh, i was uh, sharing a house with him as well we're both in exactly the same predicament both at the same point on the plank and both going how do you fancy jumping off together and that and that sounds like a good idea let's do that and then just the only thing left to figure out was what the hell are we going to do pardon my language so um you know but we uh, we managed to find something to do and that that kind of gave us a, a launch plan so we jumped off the plank together and, and so, how did you get started with with Fletcher Research? There's there's a, a bit of a story as to how you got started. Yeah, well, so Fletcher, as it turns out, all best you know. What is it, what is that wonderful Mike Tyson quote? Sort of everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. In the face yeah. <laughs> uh, yes. The um, we had a we had a plan and, until it got blown out of the water about a month before we left McKinsey. We'd looked at a bunch of things and we we narrowed down and we wanted to write a business newsletter for the football industry. And uh, that was the plan. And we'd, you know, we'd sort of done quite a lot of planning for that and sort of had a reasonable idea on how to do that and why that was going to be, why that was good, a reasonable opportunity. And we'd spoke to a couple of people about that. And uh, a month or so before we jumped off the plank, so to speak, we, um, the very worst possible, from our point of view, competition launched, which was the the the, the team, the team who was probably the best known team in the market, who actually were part of the FT group left the FT group and announced they were setting up essentially the product we wanted to set up. And um, and everybody knew they were, and they had the readers already, they had a reputation, they had all the connections, and uh, we were like, bother. And but by that point, we were committed. I think we've already jumped off the plank at that point. So we're in midair when that happened. And um, that left us in a little bit of bother. But one of the guys we'd spoken to, Mark Oliver, Oliver Norbaum, rang us up and said, oh, that's a bit of a blow, isn't it? Uh, but he said, tell you what, why don't you, um, why don't we work together on producing uh, a sort of one-off report about the football industry, you know, uh, instead, because there's definitely a piece of analysis to do. I, and I, I've got some, I've got some data that kind of could help. And, you know, you guys, you guys would make a good job of this. So that's what happened. And then, but we knew that it was only a one-off and we knew that there wasn't going to be a business out of a one-off, a one-off thing about the football industry. And uh, so we're also frantically trying to get in what happens. And it was in that it was in that first few weeks actually when we were on the one hand trying to write a football report that we came up with the idea of also 
um, writing, not just like football, but writing on the internet and doing research on the internet and the sort of impact that it was having in the corporate world in the UK, which I, I, I knew businesses in the US were doing um, that um, because of, after, from some work I'd done at McKinsey. And I knew that the UK companies wanted material like that and, the, and nobody was providing it. So I knew there was an opportunity for that. And so we, we, we pretty quickly agreed, actually, right, fo- football first, internet second. And um, of course, that, that the internet had masses of opportunity for us. And um, we, we rapidly started producing a lot of material that customer companies wanted and, and grew quickly from that. It strikes me there's a there's a theme here around spotting trends. You know whether that's computer gaming, whether that's you know the football industry would have been what five five years or so into the the Premier League and and the introduction of Sky and you know and and the start of the you know if we look at the the billions that have poured into the game in 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 over the last ten years yeah. in particular, but but it would have been relative still relatively. It was just on the eve of digital TV arriving. That yeah. was kind of why we wrote our report. It was so Sky had existed, the Premier League existed, but um, digital TV was going to quote revolutionise the sector. And you know we were talking about having hundreds of channels. Nobody could imagine having hundreds of channels. And um, but you know that got you thinking. Kind of hang on, I mean, other football clubs all going to have their, like their own channel. Like how's this going to work? Is every match going to be televised? You know, all these possibilities were just people kind of. It was hard to kind of compute. People didn't uh, didn't have any understanding of that stuff. So we, that was what we were trying to talk about. But I think the theme, if anything, it would probably be could uncharitably be described as copying people, because uh, I, I do somewhat I do somewhat believe there's no good idea under there's no new idea under the sun. I would agree with that. It's how you utilize those ideas, right? Or how you or how you execute yeah. on ideas, or how you combine ideas. And I've I've always I've always felt you know, whenever somebody comes up to me, it does happen a bit. Go, oh, I've got some amazing new idea. I want to set a business up out of it. I'm always like the, the idea is really worth nothing. It's the ability to do stuff with ideas that creates value. And uh, yes, I think like computer game was inspired. I prefer to call it by another by another game. The football stuff was essentially inspire well i had learned at mckinsey about this whole industry of providing management research and reports and business intelligence and so i but uh, and i knew that neil neil knew the football space well and and i knew the research space well and so again we sort of realized that actually the combination of those things didn't exist yet and then this internet research idea was essentially copying half a dozen companies in the us but none of them had quite got up and running in the uk yet and and then was later in my career, I found myself being inspired by a couple of other businesses, which again realised one could be inspired from in the UK. Stroke shamelessly copy them in the UK. But it was still still a relatively, you know, ninety seven ish sort of time, a relatively fledgling. You know, the World Wide Web had been around since what eighty nine was it when uh, Sir Tim Berners Lee first did his thing. But um, and, and in fact, from a there's lots of other evidence to suggest it being used in other other spaces prior, but. As a commercial entity, it was a lot of talk around what it could be. Sort of, but but yeah, actually, right. from a practical perspective at scale, it was yet to realise. Exactly. And just to put this in context, so McKinsey got internet into the building or, or sort of onto people's desks in about 96. And to have it in a as a consumer at home, it was very much dial-up kind of... Mm. Doing, 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 and all that sort of caper, you, uh, taking over your your only phone line in the house, and and on, on astonishingly slow connections. FreeServe came along 
as a pretty revolutionary ISP model back then in that it, it was a um, free ISP, as they called it, which essentially wasn't really free. It just meant that you only paid for your local call. You paid just to be on the phone. You didn't pay anything on top of that. And that was in about 99, I think, uh, Dixon's created that. But by that point, the dot-com boom was very much up and running. So things were moving very quickly from sort of people in McKinsey looking at the internet for the very first time in 96 to dot-com boom well away by 99. And Dixon's added, I can't remember, a billion and a half pounds or something to their market cap when they when they invented FreeServe. And um, we were lucky to be really kind of in the water ready for that wave and and able to ride that wave when it when it crested what do you think you learned from that that early experience with fletcher research had a great time with neil and others on fletcher i think we learned i learned a lot about it really i mean again a bit like my school experience and as much as my my brother-in-law and now all these years later you lee sort of patronizingly having a crack at 24 year olds as, as being too young to set up businesses uh i think i um i was 25 i think that's why <laughs> it yeah it took me actually many years later to work out that you were probably right that 24 probably is a bit young to be setting up a business I, I, I don't if you look at now i don't necessarily think it is but i think at, in that at that time in particular as i remember it there was that sense we were coming as a generation from a generation prior where typically you left school at 16 18 or even younger, 14, 16, 18, no, right. 21, uh, you went and got a good job with a good pension and you stayed with that. I, I'm thinking of my father. You know, your plan was you you joined a company at 18 or 21 or whatever it was and you retired at 65. And that was the expectation. And a, right. the security of a good yeah. job with a good pension, you know, that was the, uh, the holy grail, if you like. The, the concept of starting your own business was very different world we live in now. It was. And actually when Neil and I did that, together leaving McKinsey. We were the first people out of the McKinsey's UK operation ever to set up a business straight out of McKinsey. So whereas these days it would be hundreds of us. So um yes, it was probably a little bit bolder than uh, I gave it credit for. But no, what did what did I learn in the Fletcher uh, period? I think again, as I said, something I got from a school, we were able to build the best business of its type in the UK and we were able to become the leader in the UK. And again, I I, I sort of took for granted that kind of a bit like my computer game experience whatever was out there already we could beat and we, we were able to do that and i think people like my brother-in-law was kind of going how come you how can you guys possibly be you know i don't know who's in the market but i'm just sure there's a bunch of impressive outfits and i think we we very much not learned probably so much as demonstrated that we that we were able to, to do that but we were able to punch through with some you know some pretty well-respected organizations we had the bbc as a big customer we had lloyd's bank and bt and fidelity and Kingfisher and lots of, lots of yeah, Yahoo, Google, a lot of these sort of companies who um, were um, big, well-respected businesses who actually gave you know gave us a lot of credit and gave us respect, which which was exciting to see. But I think some of the real learnings came after we we sold the business to one of the American companies that I alluded to earlier, who sort of essentially one one there were half a dozen companies in the US doing this before us, and we sold to one of them, uh, a company called Forrester Research. And uh, Forrest was was great. The people there were great. And we I just learned a lot off those guys. In particular, learned about the power of doing sales well and doing sales professionally and how sales, how much difference sales when it's run, run well can make. And I think we'd known, we'd had a hint of that before we sold the business, but we didn't really, we, we knew what we didn't know, but we didn't 
easily know how to fix it. So we'd started trying to have a recruiter sales team, but we, you know, we didn't really even know kind of what what where to find salespeople and kind of how to recruit them and 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 stuff like that. And there's a so there's a quite a lot that kind of Oxford type educations give you in terms of overconfidence, arrogance, many would call it, that you can apply yourself to any problem in the land. I mean, you know, Prime Minister is a classic Oxford product with sort of classics background, you know, learning Latin. So what's that, what does that prepare you for? Anything would be the classicist answer. Uh, and I think a lot of us pop out of Oxford thinking at the end of the day, we can apply ourselves to almost anything um, pretty quickly. But sales and how you sell is something which Oxford does not prepare you for. And however smart you are or however talented you are, even if you've got natural sales skills, which I don't, there is a there is a science and profession to a sales which you, you're not going to figure out for yourself. You need you need to be taught and you need to see it and you need to there's no there's no substitute for experience. And I, I found that lesson from Forrester really helpful. One of the things that's always struck me about what you've just described about sales is that to your point, you know, there isn't a business that can survive without sales. And yet as a I don't know if it's uniquely British but there is an attitude. If you you can be an accounting professional, legal professional, a medical professional, whatever you want to define it as a professional. If you describe yourself as a sales professional, you watch people's body language shift uncomfortably. We go back to that kind of traditional sense of what selling is and actually the intuitive sense of you're going to make me walk out of this room with something I never wanted having overpaid for the privilege is, you know, that's a very broad sweeping statement, but nonetheless, that tends to be, whereas if you go to the States, you can be, in my experience anyway, a sales professional is equally as comparable just to the other professions I've described. But in Britain, we have this sort of slight aversion to it, which is a, an interesting dynamic. It's a shame for us. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I think much as I'm a passionate advocate for the kind of, um, Oxford, Cambridge type educations, you know, what they're not doing well is sort of breeding a respect for sales as a profession or as a, as a, as a skill. And uh, that is a shame for the, for, the, for the economy. Tell me about the, um, uh, we, we jump forward to 2003 and you, I think Ryan said at that time, co-founded Screen Select. And in just over 12 months, you became the UK's leading online DVD rental brand. To what do you attribute that success? Well, I mean, these days, of course, it's better known as Love Film, which is what yep. what, what the business became. But um, so the, the the business that we were copying here, of course, is Netflix, which started off as a DVD rental business in the US. And um, by the time I came across Netflix, there were already several people in the UK trying to do it. And I had, I think, perhaps perhaps with my early some of my earlier perspectives to draw on, and partly probably with some of my training from the consulting days. I wasn't interested in doing something without a clear strategy to win. And I didn't fancy joining a market as the fifth or sixth entrant into the market and staying the fifth or sixth entrant into the market. I wanted I was only interested in doing something if I could see a way to becoming the number one in something. Uh, it took me a while to work out if 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 I was to do this DVD rental thing, how am I going to win? And the answer ended up coming from Alex Chesterman, who he and I teamed up to do this. And Alex, Alex had a commercial partnership that we thought gave us the advantage that would enable us to win and that in turn allowed us to really raise a bit of money we raised from friends and family actually but they were they included some ex-amazon people and things like this and it enabled us to hire some very strong people and we we set ourselves out right from the day one to win and we wanted to have the leading platform we wanted to have the leading technology behind the platform we wanted to have the most efficient platform and as it turns out, that commercial partnership that Alex 
sort of uh, negotiated turned out to be a big disappointment for us and we didn't it didn't bring us anything like the amount of business that we anticipated but i think the fact that what we had set up in the meantime was a business whose whole posture was we're going to win we're going to be the leader in the space ended up seeing us through and um enabled us to start acquiring some of the other businesses which is including for example including the, the business with the love film name that we eventually used for the rest of the business and it enabled us to um hire some of the best technology guys in the space and it enabled us to secure some of the best commercial partnerships in the industry. So even when Blockbuster launched a competitive product against us and then Amazon launched a competitive product against us, all of which would have been pretty frightening if you told me about that back in 2003, we'd already kind of built the winner by then. And it was it was initially a mindset thing, but later it became an actual thing. Well, what was it that convinced you that DVD rental was the direction of travel? Because if I'm, I'm trying to, again, I'm, I'm scrambling back in, in the in the memory banks, but certainly Blockbuster would have been, I'd imagine at that time, 2003, the kind of the, the main go-to in terms of DVD rental or film rental. I mean, I guess the likes of Sky were starting to have more, there was more availability of film in the home, but typically it would have been, you know, a year after the cinema release or whatever it might've been, you might get a chance to watch it or maybe even longer, get a chance to watch it on your, on your home TV. DVD was a, you know, so, yeah, as I say, I would imagine that Blockbuster was still sort of on every on every high street, on every street corner. Um, it was. What, convinc- yeah. what convinced you that, as I'm guessing sort of at what stage Netflix might have been at that point, but what convinced you that rental through the post was going to be the way forward? Well, actually, it, it came about slightly the other way around. I was, um, I was running, I think, what was Europe's largest consumer technology research program in 2000, 2001 and two, And this was when the dot-com boom had turned into a big dot-com bust and the yeah. IT industry was really suffering. And and I was working at Forrester Research, this woman who was feeling a lot of pain because their customers were typically technology companies and all of whom were really reining things in. So everything was red, uh, flashing red, dropping, falling, losing money, not not. Uh, I don't mean in Forrester, I mean more in the whole sector. And um, But as as from the consumer point of view, we were doing research into what consumers are doing with technology all over Europe. There were two graphs that were just kept going up, black or green, I suppose, depending on your perspective. Uh, and um, one was mobile phones. So mobile phones are really taking off by then. People were starting to get them. The adoption of mobile was really increasing. And I thought, well, there's much must be a lot of opportunity in mobile phones. But my immediate next thought was, every man and their dog is uh, is, is going after mobile phones, aren't they? How am I going to win in such a competitive industry, which everybody is chasing? Um, and then there was another graph, which was shooting up almost as fast as mobile phones, and that was the D- graph of DVD usage. And uh, those are really taking off as well. And uh, well, that's interesting. Nobody's ever mentioned DVD business. So I started asking some of my smart, smartest mates, kind of, anybody, anybody seen any DVD businesses? And um, my old partner, Neil, by this point, had moved to the US, still working in Forrester, but he was in the US. And he said, well, there's this company here called Netflix. And um, Netflix was doing DVDs, which I was like, okay, fair enough. Thank you for telling me about them. It was a subscription business, and I liked subscription for various reasons. It's a good business model. And it was a technology e-commerce business. Uh, and I'd always... Even though in my in my in our research world we were essentially doing the equivalent of selling picks and shovels to the gold miners, 
what you want to be doing when you're selling. Picks and shovels is the right place to be, right, when you're on the mountain uh, selling those things. But what everybody wants to be doing is digging for gold. And uh, I'd always had this thing, I would love to be love to be actually running an e-commerce business rather than writing about them. And uh, so I, here, here was an e-commerce business with a subscription business model that was um, tapping into the boom for DVDs. Oh, perfect. That's That's kind of what got me excited about it. So the direction of travel, you mentioned Love Film, you had Screen Select and Video Island, and that was and that merged with Love Film, is that right? Is that- yeah, so Video Island was one of the first businesses that we took over to consolidate the industry. We took over several more, actually. DVDs 365, Mailbox Movies, uh, Bra Film in Sweden, and then Online Rentals Limited, actually, was the name of the company that, that had the brand Love Film, but that was, that was in 2006 we took them over. And then in 08, the last sort of big big acquisition, certainly under my watch. In fact, I think the last one actually was um, Amazon's DVD rental business. Amazon, Amazon launched after us, and, and we ended up taking their DVD rental business off them. And, and um, later, they ended up buying out the rest of the company, which is, is now Amazon Prime Video. Absolutely. And in terms of sort of, for want of a better expression, highs and lows, what, what were the highs of, for you of that of that time? I think... I remember the lows more than the highs. There were a lot of highs, but the ones the, the lows that stand that spring to mind were it was a slow it was a slow realization, but realizing that that commercial deal that we'd been pinning a lot of hopes on was in fact a, a, a dud was a low. Although it, it took us a while, we didn't believe it at first. We just went, "Where are these customers? Is something going wrong with this?" But uh, turns out that it was just not a very good deal. The entire DVD warehouse burning down on the first of September two thousand and four was a low. A couple of months after we'd took and taken over Video Island, moved all of their DVDs into our warehouse, and then, like, literally eight weeks later, we burnt down. Uh, that was a low. When Blockbuster launched in the UK against us, and well ahead of launching anything like this in the US, at a price that was lower than ours, that was low. That was a low. Alex leaving, actually, uh, my business partner leaving in 06, was a low. But um, in the meantime, I suppose, going round a couple of the Royal Mail depots where this was back in when we were still doing it all through dvd we had these bright red envelopes very distinctive envelopes mm-hmm. and and the royal mail watching kind of the, the sort of sorting officer they've got sort of massive pigeonholes essentially one for every part of the country kind of thing and there's a red envelope in every single one of those that was a high and being able to be able to take over amazon's business essentially because amazon had realized that we were we were beating it that was a high as well i'd love to say crossing a million customers or something was a high but actually and it hasn't by the time you get to sort of seven eight hundred to thousand customers you know you're gonna hit a million it's, it's sort of the actual moment is not is 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 sort of passes almost without incident but um yeah no i'm very sorry i'm I'm thinking more of the lows but that's unfair because obviously it was a it was a terrific journey with a lot of a lot of highlights but uh there were plenty of lows along that journey as well was was there a sort of pivotal moment where you thought Actually, there's there's the shit. You know, to your point, the million customers. But actually, you knew. Was there a pivotal moment where you thought we're really onto something here? No, I think it was it was it was always a struggle to kind of. And we had, we had a lot of competition in that market, and mm. even when we become by far the leading online rental player, you had Sky Movies up, up against you. You had Tesco selling DVDs by the bucket load up against you. You had Blockbuster up against you until very near the end. There were always many other calls on people's time, so and uh, it was always, always felt like you're having, you know, you're fighting, you're fighting to move forward. And um, no, I think I think that's one of the reasons why we ended up leading because we were always 
always pushing for. I mean, we, initially, we wanted twenty thousand customers, and the first the first two thousand were a struggle. And then once we had twenty or thousand customers, we really wanted to get to a hundred thousand customers, and that was a struggle. And then once we had a hundred thousand customers, you realize actually we're going to need a lot more than that. And you know, then then the next uh, three four hundred thousand customers were a struggle. And then it's like well. You know, the the million customers was a struck you know blah 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 so I think I don't think we ever sort of sat there and went wow look at this it's uh, we've ignited a rocket ship uh, it always it always felt like so and one of one of the lessons I have for some of the other growth businesses I know is you know the film became a big business well known in the UK turning over hundred million plus but we never really had off the charts growth we were generally growing fifty percent a year. And whether that was kind of by buying somebody or whether it was through our own efforts, but it turns out, you know, compounding does a lot for you. And um, if you go over a million customers or a million and a half customers, there's a lot of customers, but it was never really a sort of, you know, 5X kind of, whoa, hold on to your hats sort of growth. It always felt, um, always felt you were fighting for, fighting for growth. But I think that's a really interesting lesson. And to your point, you and we'll come on to those businesses that you've subsequently been engaged with and, and indeed what you're doing now. But it's an interesting point. I think that, you know, we, we read about, and it strikes me what sells, what, what certainly what generates headlines is the overnight success. You know, Instagram is 13 people in a room and, and been on the charts for five minutes and Facebook comes along and pays you a billion quid. And that's what success is in business. But it's those outliers that ultimately drive headlines and therefore subsequently expectations. But yet in reality, business success is a, is a grind. It's a series of, you know, there are some highs undeniably, but it's an emotional roller coaster. It's a practical roller coaster. It's a, it's a series of ups and downs and how you navigate those channels, those peaks and troughs is ultimately, and particularly the tough times is what determines often your outcome. But to your point, it's rarely, you know, it's really those multiples that we're talking about. They're few and far between. It, it is a grind and I think that's a really important message to get out there because I'm not going to do this do down social media but nonetheless it has perpetuated this sense of overnight success which in reality you know is often years and years and years in the making and people only ever read about the end game so I think that's a that's really interesting so, so the, the success that you'd enjoyed with Love Film and ultimately working with some fabulously talented people who have themselves have gone on to do incredible things with really what we would now recognize as household names with, I think we're right in saying Alex went on to Zoopla. That's right. You had Grays, you know, other businesses that you subsequently got involved. You work with very talented people, you know, and again, I think if you look at that sort of post, post love film, was, was it, was it a conscious decision to then develop more of a portfolio at that time, portfolio type of approach, or was it simply a, a case of how things played out? It was a bit of both, actually. I'd already taken on a couple of um, non-exec roles even before I left La Film, and so I suppose I left. I didn't have anything else particularly lined up, but I I was expecting to get back into the uh, some form of full-time saddle, probably with a couple of sort of part, very very sort of part-time non-exec things. But actually, the banking crisis hit with a vengeance, like. Pretty much as soon as I left La Film, actually, it was um, sort of Lehman's Brothers collapsed into the September, and I left in the May, in May of that year, 08. So that put pay to one of the, the projects I was working on. And the next thing you know, I was on three or four different boards, and actually, that was keeping me reasonably busy. And then I then I sort of got involved with a couple of other projects. But now I found myself 
fingers in several pies for two or three years, actually. But had it always, at that time, the thought had been, but actually portfolio career, interesting though I'm sure it was, and much you would have gained from the experience, but the, actually the desire to get back into something full-time again, probably not the right expression, I'd imagine that, that portfolio kept you very gainfully employed, but nonetheless, that sort of sole focus, if you like, or principal focus, was that, was that always the intention? That was the that was my expectation. Yeah, I didn't I didn't have a particularly clear plan. I tended to sort of follow my nose a bit, but um, yes, it was it was. I, I, I certainly felt I was a bit young to be retiring. I, I, I'm not the sort of person who's going to hang my boots up and sit on a beach with a sombrero over my head. I'm, I think I'm going to end up kind of probably with fingers in pies as long as I can. Realistically, it's kind of what's going to kind of interest me. But in the meantime, while I'm while I'm young and hungry enough to do a full time thing, I should be. I should be looking for the, the right full-time thing because I won't be young and hungry enough forever. So what types of businesses typically excite you? There's got to be some clear technology angle. Not really, not, uh, that's the thread on everything I've done. I generally want them to have some form of subscription or re- re- renewing, renewable sort of business model to them. What I, what I often call in, internally at work, the sort of bathtub effect, where if you've got a subscription business, you're fundamentally you're trying to it's based on how many subscribers you've got uh, or customers is what you want to call them and um yeah but actually all you have to do to grow the business is make sure that more more water more water goes into the bath from the tap than leaves the bath from the plug and those might actually be quite small amounts of water and involve relatively not much work but if there's if if the plug is a trickle and the and there's a little bit more than a trickle coming in from the tap you're going to get a lot of water into the bath so it's a great analogy. And and so if you look back over your career to date, is there anything that you'd have done differently or perhaps might have changed? Uh, I think um you know we all have our we all have our lessons and learnings. I think the um plenty of mistakes over the years, but really I suppose the question is uh, is there anything where you were sort of just r- using the wrong process or a wrong decision making approach and um I don't kick myself about about too much stuff. Again, I tend to look forward, not backwards. And I think I, I, I'm in a world where I need to take risks and not every risk will pay off. And as long as I'm thinking about things in the right way, considering all the angles, understanding the ups and the downsides, making sure that kind of nothing's hidden from me and, and I'm not hiding anything from anybody else, then decisions I make will probably be on the balance of probabilities, the right decisions. And I definitely have a bit of a sense. I think what they say about traders in the city is, you know, even the best ones are only right fifty-five percent of the time. Mm. But if you're right fifty-five percent of the time, you're you're going to edge forwards. Uh, and I think I, I kind of work on that basis. So, who do you admire? Uh, fairly, probably some fairly trite examples. I think uh, you can't but admire. I think Jeff Bezos for what he's built out of Amazon and the sort of clarity of thought and so on that he's he's. He's brought to play on Amazon. Doesn't mean I admire everything about Amazon, but I certainly, I certainly admire a lot of the kind of the, the sort of focus on scale and ambition uh, in Amazon is amazing. There are other business leaders I admire too. And recently, I've been been paying attention to Jamie Dimon at J.P. Morgan, one of the U.S.'s most celebrated leaders. Who again, I think is, is there's a lot to admire in in Jamie. He, he he leads very much more publicly and from the front than a lot of business leaders from many anywhere else, really, especially in the UK. So I admire that. I admire the um, 
the son of the founder of Dunelm. I'm on the board of Dunelm and, and the son there, Will Adderley, uh, so, so well as is these days. I admire him too. He's an incredibly talented retailer. He's helped helped create an amazing culture at Dunelm. And um, and definitely doesn't have all the answers, as he's the first to admit, but he's a very um, admirable person. He's, 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 um, he's, he's a good leader and terrific, and very curious and, and intelligent about business and uh, pushes people, and I, I admire all of that. And um, yeah, I suppose I'm sticking into the world of business, really, aren't I? That's probably where I where I that's the, that's the world I inhabit, and that's probably where you kind of I have the best sense of what good looks like. And and in terms of influences, who who have been among I guess the uh, the greatest influences on your on your career, or indeed your your life? Well, as I say, there's definitely some something about the Spence Jones back in Cambridge, and when I was in my teens, um, a couple of people influential back then actually. Uh, Somebody at IBM was very influential to me too, actually, is uh, saw probably some of my strengths and some of my weaknesses more clearly than, and was prepared to tell me about them more than anybody else was at that point. And um, this has definitely influenced me. I, various people at university influenced me too. And my social, my, my close social circle still stems really from my, my kind of university days. So I'm, I'm fortunate to have close friends and circle that have known me a long time um, and they, they undoubtedly influence me mostly I think in positive ways sometimes lead me astray and in terms of, of, of you know consistent throughout this discussion this morning the theme of you know, the competitive nature that you evidence really shines through what is it that drives you so I think my I'm, I'm competitive in some respects but not others I'm not I'm not one of these people who um I'm not one of those people who kind of has to win pub quizzes or, or you know, on anything I do with anybody, I have to win. I'm not, I'm not one of those people. And I don't need to be the one like, taking credit for stuff. But I do, I do want the kind of out, uh, organizations I'm, I'm part of to win and find ways of winning. And I am delighted if I have a completely kind of almost passive role in that and I'm, I'm sort of hidden, hidden from view. But um, I do want strategies that are going to win and I do, I, I do feel like um, I'm, I suppose I'm quite logical and analytical. And I do feel like there's not much point doing something unless you're going to do it really well. And you should try and figure out what the best looks like and then beat it, basically. And I think that's whatever whatever you're doing. And that's at some level or other. I've always I sort of find that to be self-evident. Um, but I think I think that has to be one of my drivers. And in terms of what success or what does success mean to you? Success means kind of being able to look at everybody in the eye with pride in what you're up to and sort of what you stand for and, and kind of um, a sense of kind of accomplishment and mutual achievement. It means financial terms. It means flexibility and means ability to choose what you do and where you play and what and where you want to spend time. It means being able to lead people, bring people with you, influence things, get make change happen. And it means trying to do things in the right way, I suppose. M- means as well as ends. How about away from work? What do you do to unwind? Do you unwind? Well, in the world of Zoom, I'm afraid, and dare I say podcasts, uh, <laughs> unwinding is a um, seems seems harder than normal. But um, yeah, I'd agree. I I'm quite a social character, and I live in London, and I love I love the social side of London. So I, I I'm I'm usually out most nights, and if I can be, and if that's legal, and. I travel quite a bit as well normally, again, when legal. 
but I don't. I, other than that, I'm afraid I, I'm not much of a hobbyist. I um, I'm not. I don't read enough, and I I don't garden enough, and I don't play enough golf. Uh, so, uh, um, but I'm I, I I do sometimes find it hard to switch off. And if you reflect back, what advice would you give 21 year old William Reeve? What advice would I give a 21 year old? I mean, I the 21 year old William Reeve wasn't too far away from the William Reeve you see these days. I probably could have been even more ambitious back then. I think I tended to look at the world then in terms of building a, a leading UK business. And I probably should have been thinking more in terms of building a leading global business or or international business. And I think the internet and technology has made that challenge more, more pertinent because it's easier to build multinational global businesses than it was for the 21-year-old William Reeve. I think that's the main one. I think I think the other one I'd give a lot of people would be you you got to figure out where the roads are paved with gold. They're, they're paved with gold in most industry, most sectors for most people, and for a lot of us in the UK, it's London. But in some industries, it's it's America or it's Silicon Valley. In my industry, arguably, it's Silicon Valley. So so one of the question marks about when I, as I look back at myself is what would have happened if I'd gone to Silicon Valley, and. Um, but you know, if you're uh, in the arts, for example, kind of it's 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 either basically London or Hollywood, really, or, or perhaps New York, and the um, you know head there. Um, you, you know, build your skills, build your network, build your build your prospects, where where the roads are paved with gold. That's that's I've, I I think I had that mindset as a kid, and I I still think that's important. I think that's the way the economy works. That's that's the lesson. And that, and arguably has been the. Even despite, to your point, the world has become a smaller place as a consequence of the, the accessibility that the internet affords us and the reach the internet affords us. But yet, what you've just described strikes me as been, been true since the dawn of, of commerce, hasn't it? That there have been always been pockets of opportunity based on a certain industry or a certain commodity or whatever it may be. You look at those, look at where those opportunities may be, and you can you can work back from there. Yeah, exactly. But if you're, you've got to be in the right place at the right time. So start, start with being in the right place. And, and so what is it? So you're, you're very actively involved with Good Lord currently as chair. Is that right? I mean, you're... Chief exec. Chief exec, beg your pardon. What was the appeal of, of Good Lord from your perspective? Um, so Good Lord was, first of all, it was a business in the online property sector, which I, I knew a little bit and sort of is, is, a, is an exciting sector. Secondly, it was... a well, this is, I suppose, the way it was described before I'd met anybody. Uh, it, it had a subscription business model at its heart. It's a, it's a software platform for the lettings industry, and, and we sell it as a software platform. You have to subscribe on an annual license. Uh, and But then thirdly, once I met the people, it was the people and the culture, and it was, it was a very um, positive, can-do, talented sort of spirit and culture to the place. And that first met the company, I wasn't necessarily in the mood to commit to something but actually i sort of got drawn in by the by the people i met and do you think that's that's true of again a consistent theme through your career you've worked with fabulously talented people is that ultimately what it's boiled down to is that sense of this is a like-minded group maybe with different skills maybe with different capabilities but that actually as a consequence you'll become or you know become very very capable and very powerful from what you can learn from each other I think so. I mean, I think diversity is important too. You need, yeah. You you can't be copies of each other. And you know, my first business where Neil and I were essentially sort of from very very kind of similar in outlook and training and education, kind of was a was a limitation for us. And I think um, 
love film we had a little bit more diversity and that um i think i think one of the lessons in the last 10 10 years is the more diverse the better really but you want some shared purpose and you want some shared objectives and you want you want to have, you've got to have common levels of trust and if you and i think the, the kind of teams i've been involved with that i've enjoyed have all managed to achieve that combination so so what does the future look like for you william my crystal ball has never been never been that transparent unfortunately but um good lord is is on a mission to make the renting experience the best it can be and um we've got a lot still to do on that still got a business which isn't yet the standard way of letting in the uk i want to fix that i think it should be and um in the meantime there's still a lot of lot of technology to build and there's a lot of there's a lot of work to do so we are um i mean we're in growth mode for quite a while yet really at good lord and want to make sure that we um we we succeed in making the lettings experience as positive and constructive and enjoyable and efficient as it as it can be and that's going to take us that's not a quick job there's 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 a lot to do well i wish you every success that quite clearly whilst nothing guaranteed in life. And I appreciate just how much blood, sweat and tears will go into ensuring the success that good Lord will enjoy. You know, you've, you've, you've got a, a wonderful track record and therefore a wonderful story of businesses that have had a, um, a real significant bearing on not only the UK landscape, but, but arguably, you know, in, in, in many ways have been transformative in terms of adapting to how trends and, and, and human behavior uh, ultimately has, um, has evolved. So, I think, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure we shall look forward to seeing you continue to celebrate the successes that you enjoy. But to your point, it's a, you know, and I, I didn't, I know you didn't quite use this phrase, but rarely is it a sprint or arguably I would say that business is a marathon at sprint speed. I think that's, that's an analogy that oftentimes strikes me. Yeah, it's, a, go, yeah. it's a long that's race, a but you're always running fast. But, uh, but I, I really appreciate you taking the time out this morning to share with uh, our audience here um, the experiences that you've enjoyed. There's much to be learned and uh, it's a great story. So William Reeve, thank you very much for your time and, uh, and great to be speaking with you and I wish you continued success. Thank you, Lee. Hi, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for listening to today's Astrology podcast. I really appreciate your uh, audience and ears. Uh, if you've enjoyed it, then uh, why not hop onto iTunes and give us a review? I'd really appreciate anything that you might have to say, any feedback always gratefully received and uh, look forward to hosting you next time. See you soon. Just a reminder, today's podcast is brought to you by Progresso Talent Partners. Visit www.progressotalent.com today for more information.